The sermon text this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 13 through 24. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Would you say by nature that you're a person that tends towards uh, rule keeping? You like the lanes kind of being marked. You know what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. Would you say you tend toward that, or would you tend towards more of the type of person that maybe cringes when rules are given or expectations are laid out or you know the, the the lanes and the lines are tightly defined which way would you tend i know perhaps that you're just thinking you're the one person in the middle but you know we, we tend to move one side to the other we, we tend to to like law and order or we tend to kind of move away from it a little broader minded a little more artistic in our view of life you know, last week uh, we saw that Paul had said, for freedom, Christ has set you free. For freedom, he has set you free. You know, this idea of, of not freedom, not like a political freedom, not an economic freedom, not, not some personal autonomy. But Paul is saying this incredible truth that no longer are you under this burden of the yoke of the law of performing. You're free from that. The, the condemnation of, of the law and how you've broken it, you're free from that. Your conscience is cleansed and made pure. Uh, no longer, you know, kind of being burdened by, I didn't do the right thing and I didn't do it in the right order. You're free from that. You've been, you've been made new. You've been given the spirit. You're part of a new order that God has accepted you and he loves you. So you're free. Don't go back under the yoke of slavery. Remember, he warned us, he says, Christ would be no advantage to you. I mean, all the work, all the glory of Christ wouldn't serve you at all. Well, of course, that leaves us with, well, what do we do with all this freedom? I mean, Paul's opponents were saying, listen, 
I mean, if, if you say that, then it just leads to anarchy. I mean, we now have the only rules we want to have are our rules. It leads to complete dissipation or this, you know, license to sin. We can do anything we want now, right? So what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to steer a path through two errors. They're the same, but they're opposite. One is legalism, being bound by this yoke of slavery. The other is license, that we can just do anything we want. It's the difference between moralism and hedonism, or it's the difference between being super religious for religious sake and, and being rebellious. So he's trying to steer this path. You know, when you look at the book of Galatians, it's called the Magna Carta of freedom. In other words, the great charter, Paul setting forth to the church, you are free through faith in Christ. You're free. But free to do what? How, how do we live in this freedom? You know, many of us wouldn't feel comfortable to just give our children all the freedom they may want. We don't know that they would use it right. Maybe they're not old enough or mature enough. How do we use this freedom right? Well, it's really, it's an incredible passage of Scripture. He really gives three ideas to the freedom. How do we live in this spirit of freedom? How do we live? Well, first, he says, you live serving other people, loving service to other people. You're going to see that in 13 to 15, that life in the spirit is a life of service, loving service to others. But this life in the spirit is also in the context of war, battle, inner conflict. You're going to see that in 16 to 18. And then last, this life in the Spirit is, is a life free to bear fruit of the Spirit. You're going to see that in 19 to 24. So we'll just kind of march right through these things, trying to understand what does life look like in the freedom of the Spirit. We've been given this freedom. We want to just enjoy it to the max, but we don't want to... We don't want to Last week, we don't want to lose the freedom by taking law back on, but now we don't want to misuse the freedom, treating it casually. So first, that this life in the Spirit is really seen in loving service. Look with me at 13 to 15. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. You hear that affection in his voice. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So Paul's simply saying this, listen, you've been given a freedom, brothers and sisters. Don't use your freedom. Now that you're free before God, he has accepted you, he's loved you, he's forgiven you, he's adopted you as his own. Don't use that now as some pretext to just take any opportunity, he says, for the flesh. Do you see that right there in 13? The flesh isn't skin, tissue, or body. The flesh is that Adamic nature, that old nature that we have, that, that kind of inward bent that we want what we want when we want it kind of thing. And he's saying, don't use this newfound freedom that you have. Just don't use it as a pretext to do anything you want for yourself, these selfish desires. You know, you perceive any need in your life, and you're going to use your freedom to go and fill that need. He's really speaking to a people that have forgotten who they are in God. They've forgotten that God has promised a Heavenly Father. He knows our needs. 
We don't rest in that, so we seek to meet our needs. We want to take every opportunity to satisfy ourselves. It may be sexual, it may be leisure, it may be academic accomplishments, it may be professional improvement. But, but we, we look at these opportunities that would serve our interests, and we pursue them with a passion. We're dogged, we're grasping, we're striving. We want it. We think we need it. And what Paul's saying is it just leads you into another slavery. I mean, if you do that, if you raise your needs up and you pour everything you have and you take every opportunity to get those needs met, you're just going to be in another form of slavery. You see it with the guy or the gal at the office, and they just want to make their mark, and they're going to dedicate their lives to it. They're going to stay there too long, and they're going to work too hard, and they're going to lose their family. And they're just dedicated because they need to prove to themselves that they have value in the workplace. And so they become a slave to it. They don't own it. They're not master over it. No, they're serving it. And they're offering their family up, and they're offering their time up, and they're offering their health up to achieve that goal. And so Paul's saying it's enslaving. Don't use your freedom, brothers and sisters, for every opportunity of the flesh. It's enslaving to you. But not just that, it's destroying. Notice how he says they bite and devour, and they consume one another. I mean, if you really need something, I mean, you'll climb over people. You'll move them out of the way. You'll do anything you have to do to get what you think you need. Now, in this context, most scholars think that it's really a, a theological debate between the people who are legalists. They want you to believe in Jesus, but they also want you to be circumcised, and you've got to eat a certain way. So you've got the legalists on one hand, you've got the free grace on the others, and they're battling each other. But they're doing more than battling, they're biting, they're devouring one another, they're consuming each other. One author kind of spoke to the progressive nature. It's like an animal. When an animal goes after its prey, it bites at it, and then it begins to devour it, and ultimately it does that to consume it. And that's what we end up doing with each other, particularly when we have differences with one another, even within the church. So we have differences here. Uh, we've seen that in this time of COVID. We have theological differences. We have cultural differences regarding masks or no masks. We have differences on vaccines that they should, be, they should be engaged in, they shouldn't be. We have all these differences. And what we tend to do is these differences bring out, particularly if we want to make sure our point's taken and believe, we can bite and devour. I mean, look at the Facebook posts. Look at some of the Twitter wars. I, I mean, it is a biting and a devouring of people within, within the church. Paul's saying here, don't, don't use your freedoms that way. Not as an opportunity in the flesh that's enslaving or not in a way that's, that's destroying us. Notice what he says. Look with me. It says, not as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I, I mean, the freedoms that we have, when I talk about freedoms, I'm not talking about free time, like the freedoms that you may think of. I'm talking about the freedom that you have now that you know God is on your side. The freedom that you now have, that you know God loves you eternally, forever. That there is nothing, life nor death, angels nor demons, things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God. That is freedom. That means I can give my life away to serve others who are different than I am. Why? Because I have God. I'm filled up with God. I'm not seeking to fill my little love cups or whatever I need to have value and purpose in life. I have God. And, you have, and if you have God, then you can give yourself 
freely to others. You can sacrifice yourselves. You know, notice the paradox here. God draws us out of slavery to self through his spirit so that we can then serve other people. It's a different type of servitude. It's a different type. It's a type that you're ministering out of a fullness, not out of a need. Changes the whole motivation of serving one another. You see it in the nation of Israel. When Israel was drawn out of slavery to Egypt, what did God draw them out of slavery to? He drew them into freedom, no doubt. Then he says, you serve me. We're to serve God. This is how we serve God, by serving one another. And notice what he says here. This loving one another is fulfilling the law, not as a means of earning merit before God, but it's being fully human. We get to serve God by serving other people. It's a challenge, though, isn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's a hard thing to consider because we're passionate about our own bodies, aren't we? I mean, I want, when I'm hungry, I want to eat. If I need a job, I want to get a job. I, I mean, if, if something is harming my body, I want to get it taken care of. And he's saying... This is the way we serve. The same, he's not denying and he's not criticizing self-love. He's just saying use that as a basis by which you determine what it looks like to love someone else. So, so the first thing, we, he says, you've been freed. We've all been freed. Those of us in Christ Jesus have been freed. What are you going to do with your freedoms? He says, use it to serve one another. So if you were to look at your life over the past 30 days, how have you used the opportunities that God has given to you? Start at the, maybe start at the highest level here. You have time, the conversations. How have you used those opportunities to serve others? Has it been more about meeting your own needs? Has it been assessing your desires and seeking, making sure that your desires are met first? Remember this, the dangerous thing about desires is desires can begin to control us when we leave them unchecked. Desires can have a ruling function in our life. Here's the problem. If we take every opportunity that we have in this life to make sure that our desires are met, not only is it enslaving, but it will be ungratifying. You think about that for a minute. I mean, how many vacations have you come back totally content like you don't need another vacation? I mean, how many times have you had a great meal and you're totally content, but you're not thinking about it shortly thereafter? I mean, you think about the accomplishments you've had. You got an A on the paper that you studied hard for, but boom, you're right back discontent as the next test is looming. You know, it's the hamster wheel that trying to get our needs met will never lead us to contentment or satisfaction. I mean, the promotion you get, you need another one. The financial security that you achieve, you need a little bit more because things are looking tight again. So he's saying here, don't use every opportunity because it will just enslave you and ultimately you won't be satisfied. Use these opportunities that you have, the freedom that he's given you. They're, we're called to serve one another. How have you been serving others in this past 30 days? I mean, look in your conversations, look in the resources that you have. Where have you, when have you extended yourself towards others? Loving someone else as yourself. That's the life of freedom because God's guaranteed your life. You'll never face a day without God's love. You're full. You can go serve other people. How about the way you've handled your differences with people in the 30 days? The differences that you've had over the issues that I mentioned, politics or culture or social, 
How, or, or, yeah, how have you handled those differences? Have your words and attitude been loving? Or have they been more biting? Let me remind you, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he says, If I speak with the tongues of angels and men and have not love, I am a noisy gong and clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. None of us could say that we fulfilled that list that we just gave. Without love, we're nothing. Because God has set you free to be his child, we can now be free to love. We can be free to be people's servant. You know, Martin Luther uh, said these words. He says, a Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. We are that free. His next line, a Christian is perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. There's the tension. We live in the freedom of the gospel. And the freedom is so that we can serve one another, particularly those who are different than us. It gives us the ability to love others well, even those who have not loved us or who have not treated us well or haven't been fair with our reputation or haven't cared for us. They haven't responded in the way that you thought they should. We can still, you are free to love them. So you want to wonder what to do with the freedom that is given you? Serve one another. I mean, start with your spouse. Start with a close friend. Has my, have my attitudes and words, have they been loving? And, and don't, don't implicate them first. Just begin with yourself. Have my attitudes and have my words been caring for other people? Yeah, that's the first thing. So we, life in the Spirit is this freedom that we've been given is we're free to love and serve one another. Look with me, though, at 16 to 18, because he says this freedom, this life in the Spirit is in the context of really what could be described as kind of an inner war. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So let's just, just a, a quick point of Christian theology here. That for the man or the woman who has come to faith in Christ, you've heard the gospel and you've believed it. He says you've been sealed with the Spirit. So the, the Christian doesn't have some second experience with the Spirit. You hear the gospel, you believe the truth preached, you're saved, you're given the Spirit. Now, when the Spirit comes, he dwells within us now. This is a mark of the new age, right? This is different than the way it was. There's a, a progression in the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer. So now he dwells within us. The Spirit dwells within the man or the woman, and the Spirit is leading us, guiding us, convicting us of sin, leading us to being more and more like Christ. That's the role of the Spirit. It's a mark of the new age. It's a fulfillment of the promise of the Old Testament that was given to us back in Ezekiel 36, 27, where he says, I will put my Spirit in them and cause them to obey all my commands. So God is doing a work here in giving us the Spirit. Remember how Jesus said to his disciples, you wait here, don't go anywhere, you wait for the power, 
that will come from the Spirit. So the Spirit now dwells within us. So for the Christian, this is what gives us the freedom. Now, but the freedom is in the context of war, because you see here that he speaks about the desires of my flesh oppose the leading or the desires of the Spirit. So I can be or you can be a redeemed individual. You can be saved by God and given the Spirit. The Spirit's dwelling in you, leading you to righteousness, but you're being challenged or thwarted that the desires of the flesh, while we're in the flesh. So John Owen was a great theologian of the 16th century. And he said, the dominion of sin's been broken. Christ broke sin as our controller, but the presence of sin hasn't been broken. We're still in the flesh. Remember I talked about a couple weeks ago, the overlapping of the ages? We are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and yet we still live in flesh. And so you have this battle going on. And, and notice what he says. It's to keep you from doing the things you want to do, that the flesh makes war against the impulses of the Spirit, trying to stop you. Now, we've seen this in Romans chapter 7. When Paul says, I do that which I don't want to do, and I don't do that which I want to do, it continues a few verses later. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, that, that nature of Adam. He says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but I do the evil that I don't want. That's what I keep doing. It's the struggle. Do you understand the struggle? It's, it's a battle. It's important to know. Now, the good news is, notice in 16, he says that if, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, as you walk with the Spirit, as you're led by the Spirit, you're going to be convicted of sin, you're going to be led to righteousness, and you're not going to keep giving way to every impulse to satisfy yourself. Whatever desire it is, it can be a sexual desire, it can be a desire for food, it can be a desire for power, it can be a desire that you won't keep gratifying, that the Spirit of God will dwell within you and begin to change you. That's the hope he's given to us. But he's showing us that there's this context of, of war that we're in. Now, this is really important for you to see, and the reason I say that is because there's two errors we make here. Uh, we either call ourselves Christian and we don't even know that there is a war. We don't feel any battle within us. We don't feel any tension. That's a dangerous thing. I mean, if you feel no opposition within your own soul, you want to do the right thing, but you just succumb again to that desire. If you never feel that tug that I really want to do this, but I really feel led to do this, if you don't feel that, it can be a sign of unhealth that the Spirit of God doesn't dwell within you, that you have not been born again. You haven't been made part of that new order where the Spirit dwells within you. It may be that. It may be. And if you're feeling that right now, let me encourage you to grab a friend or somebody who knows God well and ask them about that. I don't feel any tension in my soul. Everything I want to do, I do. I never feel any tension. I feel like, no, everything I'm doing, I have peace with all that I'm doing. There always is a tension within the soul. There's those desires that battle with the spiritual impulses towards righteousness. So that's the one error we make, that there's no battle. In fact, I'd say it's kind of counterintuitive. But while we don't like the tension, we don't like the burden, none of us do, but it does indicate something's happening. I mean, it does indicate the Spirit of God is dwelling within you, if you have that tension. The other error we make is that we just feel like, a failure. 
I feel discouraged. You know, I keep succumbing to sin, and I want to do the right thing, but I don't. And, and then I fail again, and maybe I'm not saved, and maybe I, I haven't asked Jesus in my heart the right way, or maybe I need to walk the aisle again, and we begin to become discouraged. And then what happens is when we get discouraged, we can tend to go either into despair and just forget it, forget the whole thing. Jesus hasn't worked for me, and we just go off the deep end into doing whatever we want to do. It hasn't worked for me. I'm going to just, I might as well please myself because I'm clearly not pleasing God. That's one. The other way is to say, I got to try harder. I got to start reading my Bible now every day. And I'm going to go to church all the time and I'm going to do all. And what are we doing there? We're just slipping back into legalism again. We're going to try to white knuckle God. We're going to get God right with us. And it leads us to this Christ is no advantage to you. So, so the battle, the, the tension that we feel, it's a real tension because we dwell in the flesh. We have these impulses that are destructive, and yet the Spirit of God is trying to lead us to righteousness. That's part of the battle. So how do we walk by the Spirit? Well, let me remind you, when he says walk by the Spirit or be led by the Spirit, I think he's saying the same thing. And many of us hear this language and we think, well, no, I get it. I go to the Spirit for direction. I ask the Spirit to give me wisdom on, should I go to this school or that school? Or should I marry this person or that person? Or should I take this job? Or that? I don't think he's speaking about the Spirit here, kind of being like a guide to decision-making, three steps to good godly decision-making. I don't think he's doing that. I think when he says being led by the Spirit, uh, or being walking by the Spirit, I think what he's saying is that God has given us a Spirit that he will lead us to holiness. Not, not this decision or that decision, but that the Spirit of God dwelling within us would be changing us into becoming like Christ through the conviction of sin. Not through extraordinary means, not like you're going to see letters in the sky or you're going to speak in different languages. I don't think that's what he's speaking about here. Being led by the Spirit is very ordinary. You're hearing the Word of God right now. You're hearing about the desires of the flesh. and You hear the Word of God in preaching. When we pray, you hear the Word of God. When we sing, you hear the Word of God. When you fellowship, and these words of God, as they begin, or you read the word of God, it gets in your mind and you begin to think, that's true about God? I haven't looked at God that way. And so you change a little bit. Okay, God, you are perfectly holy. And, and Iris, you know, you read something about, you know, the religion that's pure and undefiled is to love the orphans and the widows. I've been loving orphans and widows. I need to be more concerned about them. You know, boom, you just, so that's how the Spirit of God begins to recalibrate you. That's what, that's why you come to church every week. This is like a, it's like a recalibration of your soul. But not just the Word of God, the people of God. You get in conversations with people, and, and they speak into your life, maybe, even in an admonishing or an encouraging way, encouraging you greater, towards greater holiness. So this is what it means to walk by the Spirit that we're looking for God to change us into the image of Christ more and more, day by day, incremental. So what are we free to do in this life of the Spirit? We're free to battle, and to battle well, that we will not gratify the sins of the, of the flesh, but walk by the Spirit. Again, that comes through very ordinary means of grace. You know, uh, Philip, our new PA, 
earned his pay this week. He reminded me of a truth about John Owen that I had forgotten, and uh, it, was a, it was a great point, and it helps describe this tension. You know, John Owen was a theologian I referenced just a minute ago. He, he looked at our relationship with God as a union. We are in union with God. That means that there's this indissoluble union, that when God has chosen you to be himself, you've responded by faith, that now you are one with God. We are children of God. That cannot be changed. Just like if any parent in here has a child, the child may go wayward. They don't stop being your child. So we're forever a child of God. So that's the union with God. But the communion with God, Owen would argue, is the subjective experience that we have with God. We don't always feel like a super-duper child of God. We don't always feel super close to God. But our communion with God that may adjust and change doesn't deny the reality of our union with God. So you can live in the freedom of being united with God as one, but the enjoyment of the communion with God can wax and wane. And so Owen compares it to the sun and the moon. You know, the sun is always shining. The sun is always producing heat. The sun is always maintaining life on this earth. That never changes every day, 24-7, every second. The sun is doing what it needs to do to give us life. But the moon, it waxes and wanes. It's full. It's less full. And so it's trying to explain that tension that we often feel, that, that I, I love God, and yet why do I do that repeated sin? That doesn't deny, that tension doesn't deny your Christian faith. It reveals to you the battle that you're in. So when you begin to feel that tension, uh, don't don't run away from God and, and don't think he's abandoned me or I don't love him anymore. Run to God. Run to asking God, fill me with your spirit that I, that I can walk and be led by the spirit so I can be changed more and more so that as the years progress, I won't find that sin to be so delightful anymore. I'd rather see God satisfied and my satisfaction in him. So to live a life in the spirit, it's, we're free to serve others and it's lived in the context of war. The third point that he makes here is that this life in the spirit that we've been talking about, this freedom, this life in the spirit, is so that we'll bear fruit for God, that our lives are to be fruit-bearing. Now, now, you know how to identify if a tree is... So you say, well, how do I know if I'm walking in the spirit of God? Well, you're, you'll bear the fruit of God. How do I know that an apple tree is an apple tree? Well, there's generally things hanging off of it that look like apples. You know, that's how we know it's an apple tree. So we know that you're walking in the Spirit of God as you're bearing the fruit of God. Now, what Paul does here in 19 to 21, he holds up a contrast. He says, listen, your life can produce works of the flesh or they can produce fruit of the Spirit. It's one or the other, works of the flesh or fruit of the Spirit. And he's holding them in contrast so that you and I can see what the difference is. So look with me at 19 to 21. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. We don't know exactly what that means. Orgies could be sexual. They could be drunken orgies that you just drink yourself silly. Both were part and parcel of this culture. And things like these. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. For you 
folks, if you feel like our culture is just going down the drain, no doubt the culture is declining, this is their culture. I mean, it kind of sounds a little similar to ours. Just remember, every generation struggles with the same sins. So, so what he's saying here is that these deeds of the flesh, these works of the flesh, he says they're evident. In other words, we all see them. I mean, the desires and the internal struggles that we have, they manifest themselves in our behavior at one point. And, and he's simply saying, and I don't want to go through all 15 of these things. I just want to make a few points out of them. They kind of fit comfortably, if you will, in, um, in sexual sins. You see a, a, um, immorality and impurity. They fit within maybe sins of worship, idolatry and sorcery. And then the rest of these kind of fit in social sins. So if you were to look at this list, oftentimes you can see sin in our lives. Instead of producing the fruit of God, we're producing the works of men and women, and it affects our relationship with our own body in terms of sexual sin is against our body. It, you see it in sins of worship, idolatry, sorcery, and you see it in sins against the community, fits of rage, anger. And he says, and things such as these. In other words, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just examples of it. But, but do you notice something about this list? That in these deeds of the flesh, that we look at like idolatry or sorcery or immorality, and we think, yeah, those are the bad ones. Thank goodness I've avoided those. But, but do you see the envy and the dissension, the fits of anger? They're not categorized in terms of their importance. They're all the same. They're all the same. There is no hierarchy of sin. Now, clearly, some sins have greater societal impact than others do. Murder, for example, versus stealing. But in God's eyes, they're all the same. And do you notice the consequence of these things? They're not inconsequential. I mean, he says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you practice these things, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. That's actually helped by Miguel's, Miguel wrote a dissertation on the inheritance theme throughout scriptures. I got his book and read it on this, and he was helpful in terms of this idea that you know, when we think about you won't inherit the kingdom of God, inheritance in Scripture begins like God has given to Abraham an inheritance, the land. And in the land, you'd meet with God. The people of God would come together and worship God. But there is a son of Abraham that came named Jesus. And you see how the land, the land of Israel, was only a picture of a land to come. And that would be the new heavens and the new earth, the cosmos. And what he's saying is, if you do these things, you will not be part of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, when we were looking at this as a staff, we all said, whoa, we've done these things. right? We've had fits of anger. We've been divisive. We've had dissension. We've lost. We've envied. We've done these things, right? I mean, have you done, has anybody not done these things? What do we do? Remember what he says, though. He says, those of you who do these things, who practice these things, the nature of the verb tense is that you habitually do these things. I've done these things. But what the difference is this, that the Christian that has the Spirit of God within him or her will do these things and then repent. They'll repent, they'll confess. They'll say, you know what? I, I blew my top. I blew my top, not because you didn't handle me right. I blew my top because I have sinned. I wanted this. I didn't get it, and I got angry. Would you please forgive me? Spirit of God, would you please 
bring about a greater love for you than the needs that I pursued making me bite and devour people. So that faith and repentance that Jesus talks about when he began preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe, it goes throughout the Christian life. It's not just to enter the faith. It's true if you're here and you're not a Christian, we enter the Christian faith through faith and repentance. We repent of our sins. We believe that Christ was broken for our sins as we're going to celebrate around the table. And then we enter the faith. But walking about the faith, because this passage is all about sanctification, not justification. Walking is faith and repentance. God, would you forgive me? I had a fit of anger. I can admit that. Envy, drunkenness, rivalries, jealousies, strife. That's us. Unless you repent. If you practice these things habitually and you make a life of them, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is a warning to us. But notice the counterpart is the fruit of the Spirit. Look with me at 22 to 24, and I love it when Miriam is reading it because she just nat- you smile when you read these things, and we should. You ever notice that? Your face changes when you read certain things in Scripture. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. There we are, back at chapter 5, verse 6, and here too, love your loving service, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. Notice with me, just for just a couple more minutes, this idea of the fruit of the Spirit. Do you know that the, if we were to talk about the gifts of the Spirit, we would say the gifts of the Spirit are, you know, tongues, prophecy, healing, leadership, cheerfulness. It's plural, right? You may have two gifts, and you may have three gifts, and you may have one gift. The gifts of the Spirit are, but he doesn't say that about the fruit, right? He says the fruit, not fruits, the fruit of the Spirit is. It's singular. In other words, each person is called to have all nine in them. It isn't like your joy and your peace and your self-control. It's different with the gifts of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is. In other words, in each of our soul, we're to be seeing these fruits of love, joy, peace, patience. This is the work of the Spirit. So, the, so the, the fruit is singular, but secondly, the fruit is internal. You know, it begins inside by the Spirit. So again, referring to the apple tree, if you see an apple tree and it has apples on it, the apples don't make the tree alive. The apples show that the tree is alive. They just display what is true. The tree is alive. When these fruits are being born in your life, it shows you. When you exercise love to someone, when you seek to make peace with another, when you exercise self-control and turn off the TV when it goes in a direction you don't want, when you do those things, that's encouraging. That's the fruit. That's internal change taking place, making your behaviors different. And this fruit of the Spirit is going to be incremental. It doesn't come in a day. Uh, Over time it comes. That's the whole idea of an agricultural metaphor. What farmer plants everything and thinks he's going to go out the next day and harvest everything? None of them do. It's incremental. As our days pass, though, there should be greater love. There should be greater peace. And if there isn't, why? And and last, these these, uh, fruit, it is of the Spirit, right? That's why he says there is no law against these things. Law can't produce fruit. Law can keep us in line, but it can't change us. The Spirit of God changes us, 
And so these fruits are of the Spirit. They come from the Spirit. So how do we grow in this fruit? You say, you look at your life, you look at those nine things, and maybe you're coming up shy. How do we grow in this fruit of the Spirit? Well, I think we have our first hint in verse 24, where he says, And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, this is a challenging verse. A lot of these verses in this chapter are, um, you know, because we think back in Galatians chapter 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. I don't think he's speaking about we've been crucified, the flesh. I don't think he's referring back to chapter 2. You know, when we say, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, I think he's saying that when Christ died for me, I was with him on that cross. He died for my sins as if I was there with him and I'm forgiven by God, and I'm reconciled. I think this is a different understanding of crucifixion. He's saying that we have, those who belong to Christ are crucifying the flesh. We're putting to death the deeds of the body. We're actively engaged in fighting against the sin in our own life. In other words, forget the idea of let go and let God towards holiness. You have to pursue holiness. Nobody bumps into holiness accidentally. We're called to fight. John Owen, again, since I've just had him running through the sermon, thought I'd add him one more time. He says, if you're not killing sin, sin is killing you. So we're called to put sin to death. What does this mean? Well, it means that we're fighting against just giving away to the desires of our flesh. If you struggle with food and you see food, you get hungry, you want to move. No, I'm not going to do that. I, I, I want to I make my body strong. I want to grow in self-control. If you're tempted to pornography and and you get frustrated, you move toward the computer. No, I'm going to walk away. I'm going to do something. It's putting to death the deeds of the body. It's actively engaging. I'm tempted to get angry and blow my top. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to shut my mouth and I'm going to listen and listen to what they have. So, but that only comes as we can behold God. The more you see of the greatness and the beauty of God, then the less you want the things of this world. It doesn't mean the things of the world are bad. He's just better when you consider all that Christ is, the beauty of Christ, all that he's done. Then you don't want to walk in those things for which he suffered and died. Uh, so, so it's really the, the way I, I've been helped greatly. This old article written by Thomas Chalmers, many of you know the article. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. There is power. When you develop new affections, it displaces other affections that you once had. If all of a sudden you just fall in, you just love golf, then all your other hobbies and things that you love to do, it, they're secondary now. I want to play golf. Yeah, but the, the playoffs are on. I'm going to play golf. I want to play golf. You know, a new affection displaces. When we begin to see who God is, all that he's done for us in Christ, this is really the main purpose of us gathering. We keep encouraging one another about the greatness of God. That displaces a desire for the things of the flesh. We don't take opportunities for the flesh. We want to honor God. So first, crucify the passions. Secondly, consider the role of the Spirit. You know, the question is, how do I bear more fruit? Consider the role of the Spirit. Folks, if you don't see the Spirit as essential for you bearing fruits, you're not going to bear fruits. It's like me trying to cut the grass, and I'm just pushing the lawnmower back and forth. I never start it, by the way. I'm just pushing it back and forth. It, really, the neighbors may get a chuckle. The grass will continue to grow. It, it won't be cut. To try to engage in the fruits of the Spirit apart from the Spirit is foolhardy. 
And that's why Jesus himself, Jesus himself said, listen, you fathers and mothers, if your child asks for a bread, will you give him a stone? Most of us would say no. If he asks for a fish, would you give him a snake? Most of us would say, of course not. And then Jesus says, if though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? When was the last time you asked? God, fill me with your spirit. Help me to walk in to bear fruit of the spirit. So, so consider the vital role. Secondly, or thirdly, sorry, contemplate your life without Christ. Contemplate who you would be, where you would be, where you would go without Christ. I mean, think about that. I mean, sure, hold on to the promises that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Hold on to that promise and rejoice. But receive the warnings as well that if you practice these things, you won't inherit the kingdom. Hold on to both of them. They'll help you bear fruit. And then last, call out to the church. I mean, call to your brothers or sisters for help in walking by the Spirit and bearing fruit. Call out to the church. You know, we, when we have birthdays on the staff, we always go around the room and we share some of the grace that we've seen in each other's life. We point out the fruit of God's Spirit in the life of the saints of whoever is celebrating a birthday. Do that for each other. What fruit do you see in my life? Engage your spouse. Engage your friend. Ask him, what do you see in my life that's evidence of God's Spirit? And if you're struggling, share that as well. So I'm really tempted to this one, this same repeated sin. I just love it. I want to love God more. Would you please pray for me? So, so what he's saying here is we, the Christian, those who have come by faith to Jesus Christ, confess their sins, they're free. But we want to walk. We want to steer a path between the two heirs of legalism and license. We want to be free to serve one another. We want to be free. We live in the context, this life in the spirits, in the context of a conflict, this inner war. And then last, that we want to be free to bear fruit. So let me just pray for us and ask for God to give us wisdom, Lord. Grant to us everything necessary. You tell us, Lord, that you will grant to us everything necessary for life and godliness. Let it be so even now by giving us your spirit that we might walk in the words that you've given to us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Folks, let me just, if I can twist your minds a little to getting ready for breaking of the bread and taking the cup. You know, when I was a kid, uh, lived outside of Washington, D.C., used to go to the Smithsonian Institute all the time, you know, the history of museum and History, there are all kinds of museums down there that are part of the Smithsonian. But one, when I went to see it, had the Hope Diamond. The Hope Diamond is this massive, uncut diamond, beautiful, valuable. And when you approach it, you kind of approach it differently because it's this big diamond sitting enclosed in this case. And there's a sense of awe about it. You don't just walk up to the Hope Diamond and take a peek at it and leave. And, and I always want to orient you to the table before you take the bread and the cup. That when you, when you take the bread that bread representing his body broken as he bore our sins. All that verses in 19 to 21, he, his body was broken for us, his blood was shed. How do we approach this meal that we have? We don't want to take it casually. So let me read you a, a, a foundational promise in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. 
And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, all those sins washed away. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. So how do we come when we hold the bread and we take the cup? I want you to think of two things. First, that we come with a confidence, an assurance, a heart full of assurance that Christ Jesus did everything that was needed to be done so that we could be with God forever. The curtain has been torn. There is a way to now approach God. This bread and cup are for sinners. It's not for the perfect. It's for those who have repented, who recognize their sin and have approached the table through Christ himself. So, so when you hold that, we want to have a confidence and assurance. I know you look back at the week and you see how you failed, but when you look back and see how you failed, look back and see how he succeeded for you and let that give you confidence. Not an arrogance, but a confidence, a humble confidence. And then secondly, hope. Our hope is unwavering because we have a great high priest who has been faithful. So when we look at the week ahead, we celebrate the communion every month. When we look at the week ahead, we know we're going to stumble and fall. But that, that bread and that cup remind us we have a faithful high priest. He will plead our case. He is our surety. It doesn't engender license to fall, but it sure does give us hope when we fall. That same hope. Many of us right now, you're dealing with secret sins. You're struggling. You're not sure where you are. This table, again, is one more of those recalibrating moments that God gives to his people to help them get back on track with him. So when you look at the bread and you look at the cup, it's God's declaration of an incredible love for us. Let it provide confidence. Let it provide hope for us. Thank you.